G'day and thanks for joining us for this week's Two Ticks Town Talk, a segment of the Australia Talks podcast. I'm DK. And I'm RD. Please enjoy this segment from the regular podcast. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. All right. This, today's Two Ticks Town Talk is about two well-known Australian treasures. One's under the ground and one is in the sky. So come with us, dear listeners, as we travel to Victoria and visit the town of Mulligal. Now, Mulligal is located 200k, 124 miles northwest of Melbourne, and 60k, 37 miles west of Bendigo. It's basically a ghost town now. used to be a thriving gold mining uh, village, and it's located at uh, what's a corner known as the Golden Triangle, which has produced more gold nuggets than any other area in Australia. The other corners are with uh, Tanagala and Dunnelly. So there's a few houses, most of which are in ruins, but there's about 200 people living in the district. And it's thought it got its name from Mulligulk, which is a Wemba Wemba Aboriginal word meaning wooded hill. I'm not sure if that's a stretch on this, because I I looked at looked it up. I thought oh Wemba 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 and looked at that language group, and it seemed a lot more a lot further north um, than this. But what do I know? Uh, so I'm going to throw in an apparently in there, and regular <laughs> listener, regular listeners will know what that means when I say apparently. <laughs> it could be bullshit. So, <laughs> so as I said in the introduction, what, taught, what caught my eye about Mulligal was two well-known uh, Australian treasures. So let's go underground for the first one. On February 5th, 1869, a Cornish miner, John Deason, uh, who was born on an island of Tresco, uh, had been prospecting the area for seven years and was working in a bulldog gully near Mulligal. So while he was searching about the roots of a tree, Deason discovered only about two and a half centimetres below the surface a gold nugget. Tried to get the thing out, but he broke his pick handle trying to lever it out of the oh. ground. Yeah, yeah. What, oh. a, what a problem yeah, to have. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually got it out with a, a crowbar. So his partner, Richard Oates, um, who also came from Tresco, they concealed the nugget until dark. And then, when they, uh, then they, with Oates, uh, he dug it out and took it home in a dray. Uh, now, there's a signed edge at the, the gold field that says, later that afternoon, the nugget was placed in their dray and taken down the hill to Deacon House. The gold was stained black by ironstone deposits and was mixed with a large quantity of quartz. After placing the nugget in the fire, the gold expanded and the quartz became brittle and, gr- brittle and loose. When the nugget cooled, 26 kilograms of quartz was prized off and later crushed in a local battery belonging to Mr. Edward Endley. Uh, the two then held a party during which they revealed their find to, find to the assembled guests. Don't go home, boys, said Deason. That's solid gold, and I want you to stay the night and escort it to the bank at Dunnerley tomorrow. 
So the nugget itself had a um, gross weight of 109 kilograms. Wow. Um, yeah. Now that Holy was before, moly. I know. That was before they took out off the um the uh the, the courts and the other other things. So its trimmed weight was seventy-eight kilograms. That's still incredible. That's a shirtload of gold. So it's that's two thousand five hundred and twenty troy ounces. Uh, and two hundred and thirty pounds for people going along will stick with not t- <laughs> there's a lot of numbers with this one, but we won't be going through all of them. Um, and its net weight, and I'm not sure the difference between trimmed weight and net weight. Frustratingly, I couldn't get, I couldn't find details on that. But anyway, its net weight was 72.02 kilograms. This nugget became known as the Welcome Stranger Nugget, and it's the world's largest gold nugget. There's another one called the Welcome Nugget, but this one, the Welcome Stranger, is the world's largest um so it was taken taken to donnelly where it had to be broken on an anvil on the by the local blacksmith because it was too big to fit (laughs) another problem to have it was too big to fit on the scales of the bank so they had to chop it into three bits um no photos unfortunately of the the original nugget uh, it was worth nine thousand five hundred and fifty-three pounds at the time. I, mean, I did my calculation that at today's price of approximately uh, three thousand and fifty-six per troy ounce of gold, the Welcome Stranger would be valued at close to seven million bucks. Wow! Imagine just tumbling on that two and a half centimeters below the the surface. That's just. Um, that's just amazing. So De- look, Deason returned to Mulligal, and his descendants are still in the area. Oates went back to Cornwall, uh, but got married and returned to live out his life at Dunnerley, which uh, is the other town uh, making the three points of the that gold triangle. So that was that was the first treasure. So we moved from underground and upwards to the other well-known Australian treasure in the sky. And this starts with the birth of a bloke called John Flynn in Mulligal on 25th of November, 1880. He was known, Flynn was known for his motto, if you've got something, if you start something worthwhile, nothing can stop it. And as we'll see, he embodied that motto to the, the full. He'd uh, Fl- Flynn had first heard romantic tales about Australia's outback when his father's business partners mounted an unsuccessful venture into the, the far north of the country, but it sort of sparked up his imagination. Uh, in 1907, he commenced a four-year course in divinity at Melbourne Uni and uh, graduated and was re- ordained as a minister of the Presbyterian Church in 1911. Throughout his training, though, he kept up developing an interest in working in the outback, and he helped other Presbyterian ministers uh, with missionary work in rural and remote areas. Uh, With another minister, Flynn and Barber published The Bushman's Companion, which was a a popular book of info and hints for people in the bush. Uh, In 1911, Flynn arrived at the tiny... Uh, Smith of Dunesk Mission, 
over 500 k's north of Adelaide. And at Beltana, he saw the first saw firsthand the rigors of outback life, and learnt there that there is basically no medical care available to inland residents and travellers. So it, he was commissioned to prepare a report for life in the the Northern Territory for the Presbyterian um, Church. And after a conference in Melbourne and Sydney, he travelled by ship to Darwin. Checked out a whole lot of places like Catherine, Bathurst Island, and that Adelaide River, researching his paper, and included proposals for inland inland missions, how they could get uh, care to them or the care that they needed to get. And they appointed Flynn, the head of a new organisation called the Australian Inland Mission. But what was a crucial turning point? Uh, in Flynn's drive to provide medical care to the outback was in 1917, he received an inspirational letter from a bloke called Lieutenant Clifford Peel. Um, he was a Victorian medical student who had a, like, a strong interest in aviation. So this was a young air- airman and ended up being a, a war hero. He suggested to Flynn, why don't you use planes to bring medical help to the outback? Um, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I was. I knew the penny would drop at some stage. Uh, unfortunately, for bloody um, Clifford Peel, he died at twenty. He was shot down in France and died at twenty-four years, and he never knew that his letter became the blueprint for the creation of the Flying Doctor Service. So that's why that's why I deliberately use the term one of Australia's uh, treasures. Uh, Flynn all, and things started coming together. So Flynn also met a bloke called Hudson Fish, who was a founder of Qantas. Uh, so in 1927-28, a couple of things happened following on from these these meetings a few years before. Uh, a longtime supporter, H.V. McKay, left a large uh, request bequest for an aerial experiment and Qantas and the Aerial Medical Service, the one that later became the Flying Doctor Service, signed an agreement to operate an, am- an aerial ambulance from Cloncurry in Queensland. And listeners may recall that uh, DK had covered Cloncurry in a previous uh, Two Ticks town talk um, with yep. the, the birth of Qantas. So it's nice to have a tie, a tie in there. So the first pilot for the Royal Flying Doctor Service took off from Concurry in 17th of May 28, is flying a single-engine timber and fabric biplane named Victory, and that was leased by Qantas for two shillings per mile flown. And the first flying doctor uh, was a doctor who was on that flight, obviously, uh, was Dr. Kenyon St. Vincent Welsh. The the first pilot, Arthur Affleck, uh, had no navigate had no navigational aids, no radio, and only a compass. And he navigated oh. by landmarks such as fences, rivers, dirt roads, or just wheeled tracks and telegraph lines. He also flew in an open cockpit, fully exposed to the weather behind the doctor's cabin. And airstrips at that that stage were basically just a bit of a, you know, a, a clay pan uh, paddock. So they weren't even necessarily 
prepared. So <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty. I thought that was pretty impressive. So normally they normally did the flights during the day. Though they try, they did some um, night flight flights in case there was in cases of extreme emergency. And we're starting it too. They also carried extra fuel and created fuel dumps along the way. So they created a network of um, of fuel to give them ranges between certain certain strategic outstations. Um, that the Havilland that they were flying by then could carry a pilot and four passengers at a cruising speed of 80 miles per hour for 500 to 600 miles. So it all started taking uh, flight. It's inaugural year they changed from the aerial medical service to the flying doctor service in 1942 and the royal flying doctor service in 1955. Uh, so in that inaugural year, they flew 50 flights and 26 destinations and treated 225 patients. So Flynn's dream had become a reality, uh, which was, imagine him very pleased with that and went back to his motto. So on that, um, it, it was also interesting, another tie in there that, you know, you can, look, it's one thing to have a flying doctor service, but you know, how did people in the outback in 1928 uh, say, look, we've actually got an issue here. We need to send someone out. You know, you give, uh, you've got to be able to communicate. So there was a, a bloke. Spoke signals. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, you, you know this. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, there was a, a bloke. Uh, why did I not get his first name? Traeger. I'll put that, sorry, I'll put that in the um, reference, must have been as I was editing it. Uh, yes, uh, I can't remember Traeger's first name, unfortunately, but uh, this bloke was an inventor, and in 1928, he developed a pedal-powered radio. So it was a floor-mounted generator driven with bicycle pedals, powering a radio transceiver which could use Morse code. Following station, following year, a base station was established at Concurry, and the first pedal wireless was installed at Augustus Downs Station, 150 miles out of town. Uh, the first transmission was made only a couple, only a year later, by Gertrude Rothbury, the manager's wife, to Traeger's assistant uh, at Concurry. So over uh, over the next eight years, Traeger continued to manufacture and improve the sets. Um, they installed them at homesteads and hospitals and missions and the bases of the aerial medical service. And by the 1950s, there were literally hundreds of these Traeger sets in use. Um, there was a comment there on the, the site. Betty Merchant from Eremonga, uh, Eremonga, Eremonga remembers using one, and she says they were monumentally beneficial in helping with the isolation that came with living in the outback. And all around, they had what they called the galah sessions. And every morning, people would come on and have a yak and people would share stories or news. What were your kids up to? Was there any rain or if somebody had gotten lost or anything? It was just a general gossip session. So it was interesting that in combination with this, just how these communications opened up uh, I opened up the 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 outback to a whole lot of people. Um, yeah, no, it's funny cool. having a, yeah, funny having a galah session. Like 
if you're not from Australia and don't know galahs, we've got these. They're actually beautiful birds. I mean, there's there's plenty of them. Not everyone likes them, but they've got a, a, like a beautiful coral pink, dusty coral pink um, uh, breast and uh, grey plumage. Really bloody noisy birds. And it's it's uh, of course they make so much noise. That's why these things were being called a, a galah session. Uh, it wasn't just health and isolation that was improved in the bush. And Traeger's daughter Anne Smallwood discussed how the pedal-powered radio also greatly improved education. Uh, she said, "I can remember one day when he was really excited because he wanted to show us the School of the Air." sets that he just invented and they've been roaring success he saw that as a huge plus that the kids of the outback could have access to some sort of normal education and that gave traeger a real buzz as you can imagine so that was another flow-on benefit you basically had kids could get an education and still be on the the property so traeger was incredibly humble um he wasn't proud of it. It was just something he did, and he was pleased to do it. He didn't see it as anything particularly wonderful. He just saw it as an opportunity. In 1944, he was awarded an Order of the British Empire, and uh, his daughter said it was years before he even told his family that he got the award. So, yeah, just one of those blokes. So his sets went across two-thirds of the Australian continent, covering more than five million square kilometres, and are now recognised as a fundamental element in the inception of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Um, and lots of flow-on lots of flow-on benefits. And there was one other one associated with this that because there was a whole lot of these interesting little stories. So I know this is a touch longer, but I reckon it was pretty interesting. This was um there's a number of other yeah, remarkable people involved in there, but we'll finish up with a lady called Robin Miller Dix, who is known as the Sugar Bird Lady. So she's uh, parents were Dame Mary Durack and Aviator Horry, Horry Miller. So she was sort of born with flying in her, her blood. Uh, she trained as a nurse at Royal Perth Hospital, while at the same time got her commercial pilot's license, which was a bit unusual in those days for, for women, as you can imagine. Uh, so it's the 1960s, and surprisingly, despite numerous interviews, no one would employ a female pilot uh, because it was just not considered an appropriate career for a woman, regardless how qualified she was. So she basically said, look, bugger you, take it into my own hands. So in 67, there was a second polio um, strike to hit Western Australia. So although the vaccine had been around for a decade, uh, distributing it to rural communities in the state's north was like a big challenge that no one was solving. So she seized the opportunity, borrowed enough money to buy a plane, went to the government with a, an offer that she would fly her own aircraft solo and administer 37,000 doses of the polio, polio vaccine herself. Wow! Yeah, I know. Wow! So, oh, yeah, exactly. That was that's what I thought. I thought, God, it's going, I got to include this one as too. So, look for people in rural communities. Her presence was understandably life changing. So, look, not only did she help eradicate polio, but she arrived from the skies administering each oral vaccine with a, a sugar lump 
to disguise its bitter taste. So throughout Kimberley and Pilbara, Robin became known as the Sugarbird Lady. So that's why that name stuck with her throughout her life. She didn't have a long life, unfortunately. She was in her late 30s when she died of, of cancer. But my God, what a contribution. So she'd had, she'd had 43,000 air miles under her belt, um, a unique rapport with people living in WA's most remote regions. So the Royal Flying Doctor said this service said, well, God, we want to offer you a job. So, and unlike the majority of her predominantly male colleagues, Robin could pilot it, and she was a nurse. She often flew solo, and she serviced her own aircraft. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Talk about a one-man army. Holy moly. <laughs> or in this case, a one-woman one army, isn't it? Oh. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was that was another impressive person. So look, that that concludes our visit to Mulligal, Victoria. This week's two ticks town talk and home of two of Australia's well-known treasures. Fantastic! That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it was a great story. I loved it. I really, really got into to that one and those those couple of other. I mean, you know, Flynn by himself was. Um, impressive enough but you you, th- you throw in um you throw in the development of that that pedal powered um radio and that nice little twist in there with you know, the sugar sugar birth lady and saving polio it's ah, it's, it's just a great there's story just so much and there's remembering uh, this all began with the world's largest nugget of gold. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> there's gold, as you said. There's gold in the ground. There's gold in the people. There's gold in the air. It's everything's yeah. golden coming out of uh, Monogol. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there you go.